go, 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 shawty. It's your birthday. We gon' party like it's your birthday. We gon' sip a card like it's your birthday. And you know we don't give a fuck. It's your birthday. You can find me in the club. Brilliant. <laughs> April 13th, 2003, number one song in the land, in the United States at least, is In the Club by 50 Cent. And I didn't think you were expecting that to get started off with a with an episode for a podcast, were you? But uh, it was the number one song, and that's our tradition here on Legends, is to play the number one song on the actual day of the race that as it happens, what's the number one song? And 50 Cent has the, has, has the win on that one. We're going to be talking with... Um, a special guest today. We're very excited to have her here. Those of you who have us on video, you already can see who it is. Um, the rest of you will have to have to hear that in just a second. So the Legends podcast is, um, this is our third or fourth episode, and we are basically covering classic races, classic athletes, and just trying to break the race down. Jeff and I go through and break it down um, as closely as we can, try to give you some background, give you the race itself, and then spend a little time talking about the various questions and what would have happened, what could have happened as we kind of break after we've broken the race down this episode. Um, last episode we had Dick Beardsley and we were so honored to have him do an interview. So my co-host Jeff got the uh, gumption to send an email out to the great uh, Dina Castor. And Dina is joining us today on this episode of the legends podcast, where we're covering the London 2003 race where um amazing things happened we had new records in the world new world record we have a new american record and we are going to see a race run in a way that we've never seen before it's probably the biggest jaw drop that anybody's ever had in almost anything other than maybe bob beeman's um long jump in 1968 i don't know that any other single performance has ever been greater than the one we're going to be tracking through today. So Jeff. So we're just, we're throwing suspense out the window evidently on this race. I didn't say who <laughs> you just, you, you skipped right to the end, <laughs> but that's okay. People know this race and what it's about. They do. I but, think they but do. not like they're going to know it after this discussion. That's true. That's true. So anyway, we want to thank everyone who, who followed us with Dick's episode. That was so fantastic. And it got us excited to try to get another person on for an interview. And Dina shocked us with saying, not only do I want to do an interview, how about I just roll with you guys and we break this whole thing down together. And um, Dina, thank you so much for joining us from uh, Mammoth Lakes, California. And we're, we're honored to have you here today. I cannot, I can't overstate how honored we are. Thank you, Steve. And thank you, Jeff. It's been fun chatting with you on the buildup to, to breaking down this race. And I see that Jeff just, just jet-setted right over to London and is floating on a barge <laughs> right in front of the Tower Bridge. It's just a gorgeous sight. <laughs> That's right. Um, and Dina, we're, as Steve said, we're thrilled to have you. We're already breaking our own rules of this podcast. It didn't take us long. But when we started doing the legend series, we said we didn't want to do just a pure interview kind of show. Like we wanted to break down races. And if someone wanted to talk to us about it later, great. And that's what happened with Dick. Um, but we've also thought about, it'd be fun to have a co-host for some of these episodes after we got our groove on. And we figured, well, why not reach for the stars here and see if Dina wants to be a co-host? So we reached out to you. I reached out to you about that and I said, Hey Dina, how'd you like to be a co-host? on a podcast where we won't even necessarily talk about your race. Um, in the end, we are talking about your race, 
but when I described what we were trying to do to you and asked you for a few ideas, um, you, you gave me a few races, this obviously being one of them. So, um, why, why did you select the races that you did? You know, I told you, we talk about legendary athletes. We talk about legendary events and you gave me a couple examples. So what, what led to those examples? Yeah, I, I mean, I think, um, there's obviously in the span of your career, you have some really high moments and then you have some learning experiences. I don't like to call them lows because they just teach us lessons about ourselves. But, um, but I think London stood out because it was at that crux that so many of us feel when we can accomplish something, but we're hopeful for more. And, um, and London just screams that to me that, you know, I gave myself a quick pat on the back after the race, but it really cracked open a desire for more in me. And the race is beautiful in that way. And really that's what life is all about. Nothing should be career capping. We should just, we should just, um, shoot for the stars. And when we accomplish it, then reset our goals and strive for more. And if we, um, and if we fall short, just keep striving for that, that goal, that initial goal that we, that we set out for ourselves. So, um, this race in particular, um, so many details stand out to me in the buildup and also in the race itself that I can't wait to share it with you. Yeah. I'm glad you point us towards this race. We talked about a few possibilities. Um, one of them being the 85 Chicago marathon, which I, we would have been so excited to talk about, although we kind of talked about it when we covered the 84 women's Olympic marathon, we bled into 85 and, and really the rest of the eighties for those athletes. But it was almost reinforcing how excited you were about that race because Steve and I kind of stumbled on that race. I didn't know the importance of that particular race until we studied the 84 women's Olympic marathon. Um, so maybe we'll come back to that another time. It felt a little bit redundant, but, uh, it was interesting to hear that that race, uh, that, that you knew about it. You're a, you're a student of the, the sport and history clearly. Yeah. And I, where are we, if we don't have the people that paved the way before us and from inspiration coming from a sub four minute mile to a sub two hour marathon, um, inspiration is all around us and we got to grab it and use it in our craft. No right. doubt about it. Well, you know, that leads us just, let's talk a little bit about, since we're going back to 1985, let's set this race up and, and talk a little bit about what women's marathoning was like on our last, on the episode that we did for 1984, um, women's Olympic marathon, we broke down the years prior to 84. Um, and then we talk a little bit about 85 and then 88 where, with those who won the gold medals, the, who won the gold medal after that. But in 85, the London, at the London marathon, Ingrid Christensen set a world record of 221 that basically sat there for an extended period of time. Um, the women in, in the late, in the early eighties were all chasing that sub 220 barrier in a way that doesn't really get talked about these days. And in my opinion, the women's sub 220 barrier is like the sub four minute mile barrier was a long time ago. And it, it's even more pristine than that because of all the years now that we've had since then, we don't have that many women who have gone under 220. And so to me, this, the, the level, it just shows the level of quality that was happening in the mid early eighties and how long it took for anybody to, to, to catch back up. 
And in those years too, you know, we're not going to, we've, we've made a commitment not to talk doping on this, on this episode and to not do- talk doping generally, but there's no one is basically casting a, a, a light back to the early eighties and wondering if those women were doping. Um, and yet we saw performance after performance where women were taking huge risks. I mean, Dina, sometimes they were going through the halfway point in times that were almost as fast as what Paula does in this race. Occasionally, I think both Joan and Ingrid both were out way in front of their skis a couple of times in big races and weren't able to hold on and get it done. But we, it took us a long time. And so when I talk about from 85 to this race in 2003, we only really have a couple of athletes to talk about. The first is Tegla LaRue from Kenya, who basically um, bridged the gap back, right? Brought us from the late eighties into the, into the late nineties, about 98, 1999. She basically creates, is the first one to break a record and the first one to break the world record that Ingrid had. Um, And yet she was still at that 220 high mark basically. Um, And then we had the first sub 220 race happened by a Japanese who I think many people would never have expected that to happen. And now probably people are thinking that would not necessarily have happened, except the Japanese were dominant from night in the late nineties and early aughts. They were completely dominant at the Olympics as well as we, as we know, they were winning the Olympics. And so, you know, tell us a little bit about, as you're thinking about the marathon and where the marathon sat from those women, you know, early and the women that were just in front of you before we start talking about the real protagonists of your race that we're talking about, give us a little bit of background on what you think about, what you were thinking about, what you think now about that era of the eighties and even Tegla and, um, and, and the, and the Japanese and the way that that sub two twenty barrier sort of was this really iconic image, iconic event. Yeah. I'm, I never thought of Tegla as being that, that, um, of bridging the gap between, um, the past and, and the present that I was, that I, that the height of my career was in, um, because in the even late seventies to the late eighties, it was Ingrid Christensen, Greta Bites, Joan Benoit, that really were the epic battles. When you saw them towing the line together at marathons, you knew it was going to be a great fight. And, um, and you just had to, to, um, take your bets and, um, and bring them to the books and hope that your, your winner came out ahead. And then Tegla came along just an incredible athlete, but really showed how philanthropic our sport could be because she's given back so much in, in building hospitals back home in Africa. And so an incredible human being to take her fortunes in the sport, her good fortune in the sport and, and really give back and created a big wave of that, of running for charity and awareness. I really think that she had a, had a lot to do with that. Um, and then to be in an era of the sub two twenty being such a benchmark, um, it was Naoko Takahashi at the 2001, um, Berlin marathon where she broke 220, first first woman to do that. Um, Catherine Dereba did, uh, ended up breaking. She broke down that barrier. So Catherine Dereba came through and and earned the world record after that. I think um, 
Catherine's extraordinary for the number of sub two hour, 20 minute marathons that she's put in her career. Um, and then, um, and so it was just a really fun time to see these women doing that right in front of me. And it put that goal in my mind as well. So it was really my pie in the sky was, um, was shooting for this sub 220 because I saw women around me doing it. Yeah. And, you know, we, as we go into this race too, there's also a big, big event looming in the 2004 Olympic games. Um, and it's a place where there were, um, you knew Catherine who, who you just mentioned, we'll call her Catherine the great, because that was her nickname. Um, Catherine was definitely someone everyone was looking at from that. And, and Catherine really, her background, she was pretty much a pure marathoner. She did not have the same pedigree that the other protagonists will be talking about had even including yourself on the track, on the roads and in cross country. She was like a pure marathoner, but in 08, you know, a couple of years in many years into her career, um, Phil Hirsch, the great, um, a journalist basically called her the greatest marathoner of all time. Now he was speaking in 08, right? But that's a really big thing to say when you think about what we're going to be talking about today, what happened in 04 with that Olympic games. But that's the kind of level that Catherine was at, at this point in time. She, she becomes known over time as the one who gets second all the time. But prior to this, every, this race, people were not thinking that way necessarily because she had the world record. Paula Radcliffe, who was the next protagonist we'll be talking about, broke that record just before this games. But talk a little bit about how this race sort of played out in your thinking about the 04 Olympic games and where it sat as we get, as we then will go through each of the other protagonists and set the, and the set the race up. But think of, tell us a little bit about how big a race 04 was being the 20th anniversary of, of LA and kind of having this real, and women were running again at the same level that they had been running about that time. Like there was a lot of anticipation, not, and, and let's talk also about how the marathon at the Olympic games was probably the most important event other than the hundred meter dash, right? It was like people really valued, valued it as an event, which seems to be kind of falling by the wayside these days as well. Yeah. I, so 2004 Olympics in Athens, Greece, we started in the town of Marathon and ventured the 26.2 miles, the similar route that Pheidippides took, um, as the story goes. And, and so to me, it, it was a very spiritual journey that I knew I had coming up and that whole training cycle leading up to the Olympic games was, was spiritual. But as you create your schedule in the, um, Olympic training center in Chula Vista, California, where I do a lot of my lowland training. There's a saying on every door. Uh, it says it's not every four years, it's every day. And I would even say it's every hour of the day because everything you do in your lifestyle either caters to or takes you away from your goal. So I took that, I took those choices seriously and tried to make the best choices I could. Choosing to run the London Marathon in 2003 was because the best in the world were doing it. And I think that when you are rising to that challenge, you're going to get the best out of yourself. And I love that thrill of competition. I love to be challenged by the best and I like to try to beat the best. And that, um, that drawing out that synergy 
energy that happens when you're, when you're working, really you're competing against the people, but you're actually working in synergy and together with them. It's a very, um, nuanced feeling, but to feel that, um, that there's a connection with you out on the roads is a pretty beautiful feeling. And I don't think I feel it when I'm less fit, if I'm going into a race and could have used a lot of, a lot of more work under my belt, I feel very disconnected, but when I'm feeling very fit, I feel connected to the racers around me. I feel connected to the, to the spectators on the side of the course. And that is a real beautiful feeling knowing that you're getting the best out of your human potential that day. Yeah. And speaking of the best here, we have standing on this starting line. Uh, an amazing array. We just talked about G Catherine the Great, but Jeff, why don't you um, lead us into discussion of the 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 other main protagonist who had reared her head and made gone from being and also ran in a sense on the track, although she was uh, you know still one of the best in the world, but she was an also ran on the track and then just bursts onto the marathon scene. Are are the the probably the main protagonist of the of of this particular day. You've got pretty high standards here, Coach Sisson. I remember looking at one of your outlines and you said also ran with reference to Paula and the track. And I thought it was a typo. I thought you meant she also ran track, not that she wasn't also ran. But uh, this also ran, won a junior cross country title in 1992. Um, she competed at the Worlds several times throughout the 90s. She placed fifth at the Olympics in the 5,000 meter in 1996. And she moved up to the, the 10,000 later. I, I don't think she stopped the 5,000 meter, but she took on the 10,000 meter where she was second uh, in the world in 99. So she had definite pedigree on track and cross country. But as you correctly point out, she ran into an African buzzsaw. The, the athlete she was competing against from Ethiopia and Kenya primarily um, were just dominant in those distances. And she had, Paula had a crushing defeat in 2001, Roy sticks out. And you pointed me to this video, Steve, where she did absolutely everything right. She was trained. She was fit. She didn't run recklessly at all. She knew she didn't want to come to the finish with them. And she made a strong move about 1400 meters out, but it just wasn't enough. She couldn't close the last lap. And maybe that's what finally put her over the edge to commit herself to the marathon. We'd have to ask her. Uh, but certainly that is around the time when she turned towards the marathon and, and she went from what's yeah, that, that? that race by itself it's so heartbreaking. If you, there's a video footage and we'll put it in the show notes. You can watch it if you choose to, you know, Paula's form at that point, she's always been known for her head, Bob. You know, she's, she's get, people like to say that she has poor form. She actually has wonderful form. She just has a, an uncharacteristic head movement basically. But in that, when she gets tired, she really goes there. And in that race, that was last 1200 meters. She's doing everything she can possibly do. And you know, and yeah, they're all just right there. And you can feel her energy getting sucked out. You can feel them going on the precipice. And Jeff, I really do think that that race was the final straw for her, that she just said, that's it. I'm done. I'm, I'm not going on the track anymore. I'll still run on the track. She still did run cross and she did run the track, but she'd moved to the marathon by that point. It was, it was, it was, it needed to happen, but it was still a big question mark what she was going to do on in, I mean, right. And Dina, you were in that race, were you not? 
I was in that race. And, you know, um, it was, it was heartbreaking. Um, and the heartbreaking part to me wasn't just watching her kicking from across the field, but her emotions afterwards. It's so sad. Like we can have some really highs in our sport and you hope that nobody has to go that low. She was really devastated. You could, um, you could see it in her face, her husband's face even. Um, but I'm just going back to her head, Bob, because we were at world cross one year and she was right next to me. And I thought, who is this girl? She is going to fall apart in no time. Well, she doesn't fall apart. Um, she might, she might get out kicked in the end, but she, I, I, I have yet to see her actually fall apart in a race. And she actually told me that her head Bob is hypnotic for her that it's her rhythm. It's, it's her getting in her rhythm, but she's steady from the neck down. She is rock solid, but I don't know if you guys were surprised at her immediate success in the marathon, because I thought she runs on her toes and she's got this head bob. Isn't she going to fatigue by the end? Maybe, maybe at 18, 19 miles, like, is she going to feel like she's gone through whiplash or been in a car accident? And, um, because she is, it's a, it's a very, very distinct movement that she's <laughs> making. And how do you run on your toes for 26.2 miles or 42 kilometers? It seems like it just wasn't going to work out. And boy, did she prove me wrong? <laughs> yeah, she did. And her debut in the marathon was at London in 2002. She runs a 218.55, which was eight seconds off of the world record. And not surprisingly, it was the fastest marathon debut. I don't know if it anyone's was, debuted faster than that since. Right. Then. And it's Catherine the Great's world record that she broke, um, that she ended up breaking after that. Right. That was Chicago 2002. Um, she runs 217.18. So she gets a minute and a half faster within the same year. And her second marathon sets the world record. I mean, it's shocking. I mean, to me, it w- I, I would say it was shocking. I mean, yes, there are all the reasons that you said. I think some of the reasons you have, Dina, are because you were standing side by side, shoulder to shoulder with her. And there's this tendency when you're in that position to say, I'm looking for the weaknesses in my athletes so that I can stay motivated and pumped up and fired up. And you're also like, well, I can't wait till I move. At the same time, you were starting to make your concerted effort towards the marathon as well. Um, and so, you know, for me, it was more like, we better hope she does because she doesn't really have any chance anywhere else. But I don't think anybody expected. I mean, that debut still is like, it, it reminds me a lot of like Bekele's almost world record in, the, in a lot of ways. I remember watching that race the first time and saying, how is this happening that she's running so fast in her first one? Um, and I thought this must be one of the greatest race performances ever. Then she breaks the world record th- six months later. And then here we are standing at the starting line of the 2003 London Olympic gold Olympic game. I mean, the 2003 London marathon saying what's going to happen here. Um, And the whole hype leading up to that race was Paula going after her own uh, world record. And it was in every headline for the weeks that we were living just outside of the city in Teddington, outside of Bushy, um, on the outskirts of Bushy Park, one of the Royal Parks um, in the UK. And every headline we saw was Paula's gunning, gunning her world record. And I thought, how is that possible? She's saying that she's fitter than she's ever been. How is that possible? And even the, the pre-race press conference, 
Dave Bedford at the time, the race director at the time said that they had never, um, never before had so many press at the, at the press conference. And it was because everybody wanted to cover Paula and this remarkable feat that she was going after. And you could see, you could tell when an athlete is talking and you could tell when they feel it. And she just seemed so unshakably confident and, and poised, um, in requesting the pacemakers going out at a certain pace and anybody that wants to join, please come with me. It was, it was truly remarkable to, to, to witness that confidence. Well, Dina, she wasn't the only one being talked about because at least the TV announcers knew that you were taking a run at the American record. So we've talked about Catherine. We've talked about Paula. Tell us about Dina. Tell us about <laughs> Dina, the, uh, the protagonist in this race and what we should know about you at that point in time. Yeah, I think anytime I finish a race and I'm looking toward the next buildup, I need not just a goal, but a purpose. It needs to be deep and far reaching so that I dig down every day and do everything right. Turn over every stone, make sure I'm eating well and sleeping well and getting massages and taking my ice baths, but I need to be challenged. If I just want to participate, then it doesn't get me excited. So, so my goal that seemed wild and reckless was to go after Joan Benoit Samuelson's American record, um, of 221. And it was, was put in my mind because of Joan. Um, the year prior, when I was at the Chicago Marathon at the press conference, she was quoted as saying, if anyone is, has a shot at breaking my American record, it's this girl right here and pointed to me. And I was like, me, me. And so she put it in my head. So it felt wild. I would have had to run an over five minute personal best to do it, but my buildup went fantastic. I, I, I pushed harder. I ran more miles, more long runs than I had run in my previous buildups and, um, and felt super confident except for a few weeks before the race, I woke up and my calf was strained and I thought, Oh my gosh, what happened? Like I couldn't, I could barely walk on it. So I loosened it up a little and put a heat pack on it before practice, got to practice, couldn't run on it. So I came home and rested. Um, my husband, Andrew, who was my physio at the time stretched and massaged other parts of me, my hips and my quads and my ankles, just to try to get other things loose from tugging on my, on my calf without irritating the calf itself. I might've iced it five times that day, <laughs> the next day, same thing. And I just thought, you know what? the marathon's hard enough. I can't go into this injured. So I think we should pull the plug. And, and he's like, no, no, we can fix this. We can fix it. Let's just make some phone calls. And I called Terrence Mahan, who would, who would come to be my coach after coach V Hill retired. And, and I'm talking with him and he says, well, did you step off a curb funny? Did you feel it in your strides yesterday? I said, no, no. I just, I went to bed feeling great and woke up and my calf was just locked up. And he said, well, then it's in your head. And I was like, oh no, it's, there's definitely a strain here. Like something's wrong. I just don't know why it happened. And he's like, no, it's, I, I believe there's a pain there, but it's definitely in your head. You've had an amazing buildup. It was perfect. And you're afraid that perfect isn't good enough. Mm. And you're scared. And I thought, oh my gosh. But I sat with that for a day 
And sure enough, Andrew was massaging me again one day. Um, this may be my third day off. And as he was massaging me, I was talking to my calf saying, listen, I know things have been hard. I've put you through the ringer, but I really need you to stay on board for a couple more weeks and then you can have some time off. But right now we have a very big job to do. And then I remembered a dream that I had the night before my calf locked up on me and I kept going to do things. I kept, um, cooking dinner and trying to meet up with friends and running, um, running in practice. And I kept falling short. Like I was being stopped at everything. And so reflecting on that dream, I did realize that maybe there is a psychological component to this and, and let's just get on board and continue our journey. The next morning I woke up and everything felt completely fine. So I'm some sort of nut job. Um, you and all of us. You and all of us, we're all the same way before we get on a starting line. (laughs) Oh my gosh. And so I just, we packed the bags. We got to, we got to London and everything, everything else in my buildup went smoothly. It's so crazy. But before that, Dina, you also had had an unbelievable race at Gate River. I mean, I don't know that people really recognize you were in Fuego and in the spring of 2003, you were on fire doing things that you had never done before, as you said, more volume, but the workouts were going well. This is my favorite part of your book. I I love your book. And the, we'll talk a little bit about this in a little, in a a little bit later in this interview, but you were, I mean, it was unbelievable. The, the, this, the edge you were on. I mean, you got second at world cross country championships. You broke the world, you broke the American record, um, at 15 K Did you break the, I don't know that you broke the world record, but you ran unbelievably fast and surprised yourself on a course that's known for being fast, but it's got a sneaky little hill right near the end that kind of messes with a lot of people. But, you know, we, similar to what we saw from, um, from Todd Williams in the year that he ran, had an unbelievable race there that one year. It's, this race for you was also unbelievable. Also Carlsbad, you had an unbelievable day at Carlsbad going into this, if I remember correctly. I think you broke the world record for the- World record. You broke the world record for the 5K going in. I mean, here you broke the world record for the 5K on the road and you're going into a marathon. And the woman whose world record you broke just happens to be standing on the starting line with you as well in Paula. So- your mindset going in here had to have been, okay, I want a world record, but were you thinking I can win this thing? Or were you mostly saying, let me stay in my lane and get done what I think I need to get done? It's a, a great question. Cause I, I did have great momentum going into this race world record in Carlsbad or second place at world cross world record at Carlsbad, then um, second place at world cross again, um, uh, breaking my American record in the 15 K um, by almost a minute. So I knew if I was in good shape the year previously, and I just broke my record by a minute, then I was, I was, um, I was in stellar shape going, going overseas to, to compete. Um, but I also, in my mission, I'm very, I'm very disciplined in my focus. And my mission was to run 522 mile pace, the most efficient way for any person to run any race of any distance is evenly, evenly split paces. And so 522, I wanted to lock into that pace. And I remember at the press conference, the only question I got from the news organizations, the local news organizations was, so are you going to go out with Paula? And I just said, no, like just simple. No, I am not going to go out at, um, at, to 215 pace. I'm going to stick to my 522 miles and try to break two hours and 21 minutes. And that was my goal. 
Yeah. And that wasn't the notes that a couple of other protagonists take. And we're going to talk just quickly about three other protagonists, just because they play out here in terms of what the way the race goes out. Um, and also because of the, what people were feeling on the starting line. So the first one hey, I want hey, to Steve, yeah, yeah. before go you ahead. do that, mm-hmm. can we go backwards for one second? Sure, brother. Um, you bet. So Dina, I, I know your former coach Terrence and had a chance with, to chat with him a little bit. And he was telling me about your transition to the marathon and he was describing the program that coach V Hill put together for you. And he made it sound like a real test, not just, I'm going to get Dina ready for a marathon, but more of, I'm going to make sure Dina's committed to the marathon and knows what she's getting into. And you talked about three day, three a day workouts and a super long training cycle leading up to um, New York 2001, which was your marathon debut. So I heard it from him. I'm curious to hear it from you, what that transition was like, the challenge of the training and mentally what you were signing up for when you decide to train for your first marathon. Yeah. So my very first even idea of it happened, uh, when I was visiting my parents in Southern California, going on this trail to the beach from their house. And it was, um, nine miles to the beach. Um, and so 18 mile round trip. And I had only run 15 miles was my longest, not only, but 15 miles was my longest long run prior to this. And I was so intimidated by the distance that I took it real slowly at the beginning and I touched the sand and I started working my way back up the hills and I just felt such a buzz of energy, like accomplishment before I was even done. And I called coach V Hill when I got back to my phone and said, I just ran 18 miles to the beach and back. And I felt so amazing. I think I want to run a marathon someday. And he said, Oh baby, I have been waiting to hear those words come out of your mouth. And few months later, I was uh, booking the, the New York City Marathon, my tickets to the New York City Marathon. He said, it's just going to be an uptick in mileage. That's it. We're just going to throw in some longer long runs. And uh, that is not what unfolded. My training schedule was brutal. It was fatiguing, not just physically, but mentally to have to like rally again and find the strategies to, um, to freshen my, my spirit even because it was so, it was, it was a draining process. And I remember one run specifically that Terrence Mahan was training with me because he was also running New York. He would become my coach years later, but at this moment he was a teammate and we went, um, down this hill, this side road, down the hill out of Mammoth, past the airport, took a left on Green Church Road. And I just looked when it came time to turn around and work our way back into town. It looked the mountain, this massive mountain at 12,000 feet altitude looked so puny in the distance. And I thought, oh my God, I have to go back there. The run was 20 miles long and the marathon is six miles longer than this. Like how there was like some of those days where I'm like, I'm not sure that, that this is possible. And then of course, um, there's the whole marathon and training in and of itself. You never run that distance at that pace. So how is, how is race to even possible? And it was a real lesson in just learning to trust. You trust the process, you trust your program, you trust your coach and your teammates, and you trust that your body is going to recover and taper perfectly. And even with the taper, everybody, even to this day, I think 
in my week and a half taper that I'm going to be like sprightful and bounding with energy. And instead I have a headache and I'm lethargic and my muscles are getting tight. So it makes you worry. I think that's when the doubt seeps in that you worry, Oh my gosh, am I going to be able to do this task? I've, I felt better during this entire training than I feel right now. So it was certainly a much bigger jump than I was originally told, but I, I love to rise to the challenge and certainly had a great coach and great teammates to help uplift me every day. No, you definitely I'm a had a team player. You definitely had a great coach. I mean, and you had great teammates. I mean, that, that is a thing that was happening there in Mammoth Lakes. You all had a great, uh, you had made decisions a few years before that, um, the coaching staff and the people that came up there to make a concerted effort at what we now see is pretty ubiquitous across the U.S. in some key focused training groups, fo- mostly being taking advantage of altitude training and training really hard and focused to be the best in the world. That wasn't happening in the U.S. prior to this. Um, yeah, everybody kind of trained on their own. And if you looked at the East Africans and all the success they were having at the longer distances from 800 meters all the way up to the marathon, they trained at altitude and they trained in groups. And again, it's that um, that rising tide that when you're in the best races with the best, you get a, your best performance out of yourself. And if you can have that in your training every day, it's a, it's a a beautiful synergy to be able to work together. And, um, so in this time where we are at stay at home orders still, except for essential meetings, um, that it now more than ever, I miss my teammates because I know how much they mean to my commitment every day. Now I get out and I run for a half hour if I get it in. But when they're here in Mammoth, I can't wait to show up at eight o'clock practice and I can't wait to grind out mile repeats and and tease them in tempo runs because Andrew, my husband and now coach of the Mammoth Track Club staggers our starts. It's been a long practice here in Mammoth that if we have a tempo run, the slowest people will start out first and the fastest people will be at the end. So it's kind of like a cat and mouse game. I feel like it really emulates racing really well, um, that you're chasing and hunting and being hunted. And it's a really fun, playful way to, to approach a competitive practice. But I always turn around and tease the guys, catch me if you can before, before taking off, bolting down the road. And it's a similar, like fun energy that I feel in racing, but I think it's because we practice it. Yeah. That's, that's really cool. Thank you for giving us that, that feedback. I mean, that, that insight into what it was like at that time and how important training groups are. I think one of the really sweet things about all this, Dean, is just how much our listeners can, will be able to relate to you as a human being. And you have the same experience that they're having in the starting line. You're wondering if your legs are going to fall off. You're wondering if this, what the heck this taper is all about. You're 20 miles into a a long, long run, wondering how in the world am I ever going to be able to run 26.2. And I think it's really important for people to recognize and understand that even going into what was going to be one of the most amazing races of your entire life, you were, you weren't all together ready before a few days bought prior to it, or at least a week and a half prior to it, you were wondering whether it was all going to work out for you. Right. And I think that's 
truly, I accredit this to for a long time that that's the beauty of our sports, that we are all in it together. The 40,000 people on the starting line, we go through the same exact things, whether you're trying to break a world record or whether you're raising money for awareness or charities, um, we go through it all. Like I could be on the basketball court with LeBron James all day and night and never know what it's like to be LeBron James. We could shoot free throws and have a, um, a game of pickup. I'll never never know what it's like to be him, but we go for a run together and we are immediately, um, connected and are applicable and relatable to one another. Once we're, once we become runners. Yeah. Well, one other woman who was on the starting line is somebody who a lot of people wondered if she was actually touchable because Tulu from Ethiopia had absolutely been a, a dominant force on the track. She had won so many things on the track. And she, along with one of her teammates, was the reason why Paula ran away from the track. And so this was her debut also at 2003, standing on the starting line. I know there were a lot of people wondering whether how she was going to play out. So here was a, a field that was probably going to go out after it. You had Catherine who'd already run so fast. You had um, Paula who broke her world record and was calling for a 215 kind of pace for the pay, with the pace setters. And yet there's this, this lurking presence who had been absolutely dominant in her, in, in the sport at the shorter distances. So she's also in play. Um, and then two other athletes that we need, we can't, we have to talk about just because they, they also played a part of what happened in this race as it went along. And those, that is um, Susan Chepkamai, who had the world record at the half marathon before this. So people were also looking at her saying, all right, what is this going to be like? I think she had run a marathon before, but people weren't really sure how she was going to play out. And she had run so fast. It was a pretty stellar performance in the half that people had definitely turned their heads to say, okay, this is somebody who's serious. And then of course there's Constantina Dita who, renowned for going out fast, renowned for putting her nose in races. And, and, um, and she ends up, you know, as we know, by the time we get to 1990, we get later on in her career, she's in a position to win an Olympic gold medal. But these, these are the, these are the people that are standing on the starting line. We're talking about a who's who of women's distance running in, in, in the late early two thousands. And before the gun even goes off yet, pretty much everybody, except for maybe Tulu. I think everybody else has basically, and, and Catherine probably, although Catherine was really grumpy about the pacing situation, right? So she, there was a whole construct about what was going on with pacing. It was confusing. It seemed like Paula was kind of behind the scenes influencing things, but then it was like, and she said, no, I didn't have anything to influence it. I'm confused too. And everybody that knows that race knows I would be shocked to know that Paula wasn't completely intimately involved in every single position, maybe even picking who her paces were and who other people's paces were. But talk a little bit about that, that sort of pre-race press conference. And Catherine was definitely grumpy and she's not, she's a very gracious human being, but she was, she'd made it pretty, uh, pretty, pretty vocally known that she wasn't really excited about what was going on. And she thought that we, they were consenting, putting in a situation that was really unprecedented with pacers, male pacers in a women's race. They had world record ramifications around all this stuff. Can you give us a little perspective about that before we jump into the race itself? Because that yeah. played into what kind of happened throughout the rest of the race. It, it, it played a part. 
Catherine certainly thought there was a conspiracy to uplift Paula in, in this moment. But if you're a race director, Paula could or couldn't have been involved in it. If you're a race director and hear that someone's going to go after the world record, then you want to, you want to kind of cater to, to what the asks are. Um, any, any race director would, cause there's a, there's a sense of pride that Paula is not just from the UK, but she's also running on, on that soil to, to bring that record back to, to London. So, um, Catherine, yes, a little, a little on edge regarding that. And you mentioned Durar Tutulu, who was kind of this, um, dark horse in the marathon, but the reason why, um, everybody feared her on the starting line is she is a two-time gold medalist in the 10,000 meters. I mean, it has to translate over, right? It has to translate over. And then Susan Chepkamai, who you also mentioned, um, She's, she, uh, debuted in the marathon in 2001, just like me. So she was young at marathon running, but in New York in 2001, she was second. She was a runner up in New York in 2001. So she was certainly on everybody's radar. Um, and then there's Constantine Adida who is just known with everyone, no matter what the distance she's going to go out hard and make the race really hard on herself in the end. Um, no matter how her buildup went, just feisty. And uh, I would even tell her at races, like when she was defeated or feeling crushed, like don't lose that spirit. Like you just keep knocking on that door. It's going to, your day's going to come. And it came in the best way <laughs> ever in 2008, when she claimed Olympic gold in the Beijing Olympics. So this is just a deep, and we're not even talking about everybody. We're just talking about some of the, some of the stands out, you know, the gold medalists and world record holders. Uh, <laughs> but it was, it was certainly, um, in intensity there. And it was almost a blessing that a lot of the conversation was on Paula's attempt to break the world record. Cause it kind of just put us all on our own, on our own field that everybody was just going to go accomplish their, their race. And I think that could be a little bit what peeved Catherine a little, because she didn't want a a time trial race. She's a competitor and she shows up well in competitions. She's won, was it, um, Boston and Chicago. And as you said, Steve, she has, she is runner up on a painful number of times, but really she has earned the title Catherine the great with her world record performance and so many sub two hour, 20 minute marathons. And she did win her world championship one year. You know, she finally to get that world marathon championship win that I think really for her probably sealed so many other things. But let, let's let's set this, let's do the final bit of setup, Jeff. Why don't you give us a little bit of the details here about who's on the starting line? And we talked about the protagonist on the starting line, but you have a few things that I think are important because the last time we talked about the London Marathon, Dick Beardsley won it. And, you know, here we are 20 years later and it is a very different race in terms of the depth of, the depth of, of talent and the size of the fields and what it meant to that country. The race started in 81. It was inspired by the New York City Marathon. The, the founder of the race, Chris Brasher, had been to New York and wanted to bring a world-class event to London. So that's what got the race started. And I think it was in the neighborhood of 7,000 athletes in the first year with a lot of question about whether it was going to work and how it was going to go. And obviously it went great. 
And by the time, um, by, by 2003, the race had grown to 33,000 athletes with lots of people who didn't get in 80,000 applicants to get into that race. And you can see just by watching the TV coverage, it's unbelievably festive. You've got all these costumes and just a real spirit to it. Having not even been there, if I compare it to other marathons I've done, it just seems a little less intense for the rank and file runner than some other races. And obviously, it's known for being fast, which is why the, the record was being attempted here. And there had been three world records set by women in the 80s. So uh, Greta um, set a world record and Ingrid set two world records, if I have my notes correct. But that had been, you know, 20 years since women had set a world record in London. But men, Caducci, had set a world record in London just the, the prior year. So the, the women were following up. Um, Apollo was attempting to follow up on Canucci's big day the year before. Yeah. So the gun goes off and Paula's playing, pulling no punches. <laughs> she pulled no punches. She would have a 5'10 for her first mile. Hey, I have, I have a question about the gun going off, though, because on the TV <laughs> coverage, it looked like you were ready, set and waited forever. I mean, that's just as a spectator. Do you remember that at all? Do you remember being like ready to, ready to go for an unusually long time for some reason? It was a, it was a long pause, but I wasn't sure, you know, you just kind of wait for that moment, but I do remember it being a long pause and you just never know if it's technical difficulties. Are we live? Are we live on air yet? Or, or are we waiting for the rain to settle? Cause it was a drizzly day. So, um, you just, um, I guess at that point you've done all the work and it's an, it's an agonizing time, which is why that, that race pause stands out because even when it's fast and efficient, it's still like you could hear a pin drop and that anticipation is so big. Um, and so, so it did even so many years later stands out as one of the, one of the longest holds on the starting line. And it was almost as if people were ready to fall start too. There was like some, some head bobbing, which made me know that people were going to get busy from the very beginning. It wasn't just like, let's warm up into this. Um, and Paula certainly after that bang showed that she was, that she was ready to rumble that day and was not going to let any mile pass her by that she didn't take advantage of. Yeah. As Steve was saying, the field, it looked like you were shot out of a cannon. Um, you had obviously these phalanx of pacers helping lay it down and Paula getting right after it. It seemed like she had separation, you know, within a minute or two, um, and not, a, not that much, you know, a second or two, but enough to notice And the splits were crazy. So what, tell Her us what third, it was like. Yeah. I, I mean, I just remember watching just to observe who was going and it was interesting that it even seemed when the race went off, that there was a few people like, should I, or shouldn't I? And they were kind of fluctuating. So it was really hard to gauge my pace to try to get on that 522 pace. It was really hard to gauge that when there was so much jostling and activity going on. It seemed like a lot of wasted energy for so early, early in the race. But Constantina Dita really did make a charge at going at going with Paula. She was she was off the back of her, but she was certainly certainly taking a shot at it. Yeah, they went. 510. She went 510 for the first mile, 508 for the second mile, mile, 457 for the third mile. That's a little downhill that, that section. Then 507 again, 
By that point in time, Dita, Chep, um, Chep Kamai and Fernandez are 20 seconds off the back and you guys are almost a minute behind at four miles. Yeah, I didn't see them. I didn't see them. I mean, that's crazy <laughs> to think about. the whole rest of the race. Yeah. yeah it's crazy to think yeah. about that, that they are, they, the chase pack is 20 seconds behind at four miles and you're a minute behind at four miles. Like that is, you know, at that point in time, it is, as the announcers say, by the way, the announcers in this, in this video, they do such a fantastic job of continuing to keep a sense of, of, uh, a cat and mouse, a little bit of, of creating a little bit of a feel that something could, the wheels could still come off because, Drama. because they were so shocked that Paula was doing what she was doing at the level that she was doing it. I mean, she basically comes through then fifth mile is five ten, And by the time she gets to the six mile marker, she runs her slowest mile. I think it ends up being her slowest mile of the race. If not, it's one of, it's very close to the slowest mile of the race here at the six mile marker. And she basically at that point in time is two minutes quicker than what she had run the year before for that incredible. Point. 10K at the 10K mark. That is, that's incredible. At that point, the the announcers and anybody watching it is saying, all right, we have no idea what's getting ready to happen here. This is either going to be the most epic race that we've ever seen, but in typical, the the typical fashion of the Brits, they were not particularly sold. (laughs) They were not particularly sold on her ability to do it. They were all like, we're not so sure. This is our girl, but we're not so sure if it's really the smartest move she should be making. They saw her slow mile and thought, this is it. She's doomed. She's fatiguing. Whereas Paula in her mind thought, oh no, I'm going to get off pace. I better crush this next mile, which she did. She's um, just, just, an unbelievable setup to the race. And the announcers are, I'll say really good at, um, at, at bringing you along in that race. They did such a great job in, in reviewing the the race, um, a couple of years later when, and even before I was writing my book, it was really incredible to see how it could have just been a Paula show, but they made it, they made, they made the hype of the other credentials in the race. Pretty, pretty great to, to, kind of foreshadow that this isn't, this isn't the end yet. You, the race isn't over until someone large sings, <laughs> you know, yeah. safety is the, the other word. Yeah. So. Well, with that so-called slow mile six of 522, I guess at that point, Dita got to within 10 seconds and that's when they were saying like, all right, are we seeing a shift here? Did, did she burn too many matches too early? Is, is there a problem? And of course there wasn't, but really for a moment, you have to wonder when something's never been done, when no one's ever gone out at that pace and you see just a suggestion of, you know, fatigue, maybe she misjudged it. I, I think they were sincere. I don't think they were um, trying to just create drama. I knew what happened and I was wondering. Right. <laughs> and you're, yeah. It. And you're, you're, you're seeing the drama. They're not just creating it. You're, you're watching it unfold. And I think when, in this race, there was so many things that could, cause when a marathon goes wrong, it goes south very quickly. And so to see a 522 mile, her slow mile, which is my pace that I was trying to stick to, um, her slow, her slow mile, you can't help but think, was, was something off then. And when we talk about pace setters, you also, it could have been the pace setters that were, that were off in that, in that mile. And then she just took, took charge back. I will say, I can't remember if it was in 2003 or when I returned in 2006, um, at the London marathon that the pace setters that were set for either sub 220 
221 this time around or sub 220 the next time around, they weren't wearing watches. And it's pretty hard to set a pace if you're not wearing a watch. So uh, it's not... The, the runner still has to be really engaged in and committed to the, running their race, even when there are people around them. To me, the benefit comes from the, the pace setters. The benefit comes from the fact that I train with people all the time. I have people next to me when I train uh, men and women all the time. So to run a race in no man's land feels really lonely to me. So even if it's just company and I'm leading, leading the charge, I, I like to be surrounded with people, even if they're drafting off me. I like to have people there. Well, and the Kenyan men, especially, were not known for being metronomes. <laughs> so you, right, very you, sporadic moves. That's yes. the kind of the way they ran. And many of the men who were in the position of being pacers were, would have been the best in the world, best in any other country of the world, but they were still the sort of second tier, third tier of Kenya at the time. So, but the two pacers that Paula had were, were on after that point. And basically at that point too, one of the things I noticed in the context of this race is how much Paula made this race her own. Those pacers were there, but they were not being relied upon. And from the point of time that we get to about, you know, 20 K or so on many times she has them, um, you know, there didn't seem like it was a windy day. What, what were the conditions like? They, they didn't, it didn't seem windy because she was always, her pacers seemed to always be either you know, far to her, a little bit to off to her left or a little bit further off to her right. They were running right next to each other, but she was not tucked in like, um, like your pack was tucked in to all behind those pacers as they were running and, and, and jostling with each other. Cause you had a pack of six or seven there for a good bit of the early part of the race, but she just didn't seem to really have any business other than hoping that they were being consistently on pace. And like, she knew, she knew what she was on for. She knew what she was doing. She knew what her attack was. I don't, I didn't see her look at her watch. I didn't see her do anything. It was just like, this is one of the most phenomenal performances that we've ever seen from a human being doing anything ever. Like, um, and she was just going to ride that feeling. Like she knew what that, what that pace felt like. And she was going to ride that feeling. It was a, um, almost poetic way to race a marathon when your time is the goal, because when the time is my goal, I check my splits. I even had five K splits written down the whole, my whole arm because we were getting, um, um, five K, um, every five K along the course was marked. So every five K I would look at my wrist and see if I was on pace and, um, and, have some self-talk from there on out. Am I over and I'm under and my math is terrible anyway, add a marathon to that mix. And I still can't figure it out even when the answers are on my arms. So, um, <laughs> I struggled big time, um, um, with mental math during the span of a marathon. Um, and sometimes I even see splits and I'm like, Oh, now I can't remember if I was ahead last time or behind, like just run, just run the race. And Paula certainly did that that day. Her first half was 108, I believe. And 10806. Yep. Okay. Yeah. And um and we'll learn that she broke it down from there. <laughs> yeah. I mean it it in a lot of ways, the, one of the frustrating things about talking about this race is that there really is nothing else to talk about except to really go in depth into how hard it is for a human being to run the way she ran uh, by itself, to, to, to lead off the front, to not be utilizing the pacers in a way that you would have expected, 
to be, as you said, poetry in motion. She was in feel what they, what Chick Sent Me High talks about flow, right? It's a flow state. She's in a flow state that as you noted in your book, isn't, doesn't make it easy. It just makes it manageable. And she's on the edge of balancing the challenge that's in front of her, which is far enough in front of her that to keep her motivated and fired up. However, she feels like she has the ability to reach that goal if everything operates just fine. And you can see her through those early miles, occasionally checking to make sure that things are just right. And then once it's all just right, she lets it all go and just rolls. But the way she rolled, I mean, the mile splits are unbelievable. 511, 518, 513, 510, 516. I mean, it, it's just unbelievable. Believable. 10806. She's two minutes ahead of uh three minutes ahead of the entire field. And it's it's there's there's no real question about what's gonna happen in terms of who's gonna win this race. But even at this point in time, the race, the race commentators are saying, well, we don't expect that she's gonna be able to run any faster than this. So probably we're gonna see a 216 at the best. And they're still kind of like, not sure we're even gonna see that because you know how this goes. Like there's, there's not much of a chance that, that this is going to get pulled off the way that she thinks. Cause it, that's how far it was outside the realm of possibility. And I think that what I learned from this is how beautiful it is to put yourself in that vulnerable position that she put her goal out there and was stoic and not, not overbearing and confident, but quietly confident at the press conference and leading up and all of the press coverage she got leading up to this race. And then she took that quiet confidence and just started grinding from the gun. And that to me was just, just, letting her legs do the talking and yeah, she could have blown up. Things could have gone South. She could have, she could have faltered in the last 10 K, which many people do if they go out too aggressively. Um, but she, she put herself in a vulnerable position, especially as you mentioned, Steve with the British press. Um, but she, she went out and really just executed what she thought was possible. And I really liked the demeanor with which she did it, that you could, it was such a different, um, a different setup than someone saying, yeah, I'm going to break that world record. And, you know, there wasn't that arrogance about it. It was just that, that quietly acknowledging that she has put in the work and she's going to, she's going to give it a try. And I really, I really appreciated that in the buildup and then the beauty of seeing it unfold in a very big, bold way, which isn't how she spoke beforehand. Yeah. And, and then, you know, by the time she gets to the 30 K she's broke the world record for 30 K. Um, her splits there, your 508, 510, 513, 507, 507, 511. I mean, this is, at this point in time, you know, the gloves, I mean, the gloves have come off. I think she, literally she takes her gloves off somewhere after the, uh, around the 20 mile marker. So she takes them off. And the other thing that I think is really important to talk about with this though, Dina, is it's easy to then say it was easy, but the level with, of concentration. And then we, you know, she had really cleaned up so much of her biomechanics that when you watch her through that first 30 K she's so smooth. I mean, below, you know, from the waist down, she's always so smooth, but she had really cleaned up a lot of that, that, but when she gets tired, you know, it, she's not someone who hides her fatigue well, but she is someone who you cannot count that that fatigue is going to be detrimentally 
detrimental to her performance necessarily, as you found out at World Cross a couple of times running shoulder to shoulder with her, that you think this girl is going to fall apart. If you didn't know who she was, then maybe you thought she was going to fall apart. When you did know who she was, maybe you got a little hope that you could Maybe you could take it to her. And yet she just held so strong and was so ferocious and committed to that goal that, yeah, there was vulnerability, but there was also intent. Intent, like most human beings have no idea. The kind of intent that this requires is something like walking across a tight rock, what tight, a tight, you know, walking across the the twin towers when they existed on a on on a the thread of a spider's thread or something. It's like it's no other human being in the world can do what she's about to do, and maybe she can't either. And yet she's just doing it mile by mile by mile. It was, it was very interesting to see her splits afterwards and to know in those miles, um, that she was actually fatiguing because she was getting more exaggerated in her form, but she, it was almost her cue to push harder, which is interesting because when majority of us feel fatigue and, uh, it's our, it's an alarm to, to conserve a little bit. And it was really her cue to keep pushing and push even harder. So she had these, these wicked fast miles in there, the 508s and the 509s, but it's also a really intensely crowded place where spectators are. So I think you'd find if you looked at a lot of splits in the race, that there's all this energy and hype in this tunnel of noise. And she must certainly in in her automatic response to push through fatigue, but also rely on those crowds who were obviously pulling for her um, in her own home country. Yeah. And there's another race going on behind that. Tell us a little bit yeah. about that because <laughs> that's where you were. And that race started to come, you know, um, Chep Kamai and Dita went out and kind of paid for it. Paula, I mean, uh, Catherine pulls them in somewhere around the 15 or 16 mile mark. She bridges the gap and everybody start the, even the commentators talk about her experience that she's going to break and uh, go under 220. I think people expected her to maybe even go under it pretty pretty far. It didn't end up playing out that, <clears throat> that way, but tell us what was going on for you in that and, um, where, where your experience was and, and how that played out in those miles as you were still tracking for what you were hoping was going to be, um, putting you in the record books as well. And right. You know, before you, you start into that, let me level set a little bit and just give everyone a cut at the 20 K. So just before the halfway point, uh, you know, Paul was in the lead. Of course you had Dita one minute and five seconds behind in second. You had Catherine or excuse me. You had Susan Chepkemi uh, just a few seconds behind Dita in third. And then in fourth, Adriana Fernandez, who was two minutes and 23 seconds behind. And there's somewhat of a group there. Uh, so you had Fernandez uh, Alemu, who we haven't really talked about, Petrova, Tulu. and then um, Tulu you, Dina, and then Tulu right behind you. So at least mm -hmm. that 20K cut, um, you, you guys were all right in there together. So you had first way ahead, second, a minute ahead of third, and then behind that, you guys were grouped together. So that's where the action was in the second half of the race. Like what was going on with second, third, and then the group from four, and beyond. So yeah, tell us how that all developed, how you went from that group and how things broke apart and people moved up and down. 
I um, have to disclose that I had to poop from mile three. <laughs> so, um, so a lot of my, uh, a lot of my attention was going from trying not to and trying to stay engaged in the race. So, um, I remember very critically as we were approaching the tower bridge that I was going to stop and use a stream of porta potties that were there. And, and I just looked around me and saw Adriana Fernandez from Mexico. I saw Gerardo Tulu. I, I was in this pack of, um, Elf Neshulemu, who I would pass in 2004 to claim the uh, bronze medal in the Olympics. So I knew these women and I just thought I can't lose them right now. I, whatever, whatever happens down the line, like <laughs> I have to, I have to, I have to ride this moment because this is, this is magic to me that we can run in this pack together. And, um, and as we were coming off of the tower bridge, I actually felt like I was holding back to, to stay with them. And so that's I right made, before the halfway point, right? Tower. Yes, bridge. yes, exactly. And the tower bridge is also uh, right next to our hotel. So there's all these things going through my mind. Like I have to stay with this pack, but then the pack seems like they're, they're holding me back and I should, I should detach from them. But what are the, what are the um, ramifications of doing that? If I then in the next mile feel fatigued and alone, um, so that, that critical choice of staying with them and feeling fresh or, or detaching and, and moving forward. It's also where, um, we stay at the tower hotel right there next to the tower bridge. So you see your hotel and you're like, Oh man, I could use a shower right now. And you like <laughs> that, that pull to like, just end the misery. Right. Like, cause it's a scary, scary, uh, half mile, the scariest half of the, of the marathon is coming up. So I made the the conscious effort to just slowly pull away from, from this field of women that I respected so deeply. And, um, and then I found myself alone and needing to go to the bathroom again. And, but up ahead, I saw a staggering figure and it ended up being Constantita Dita. And it was out of, we came out of the, um, out of the, the cutties there through the boatyards that were running and making our way really that big straight line towards the the finish toward like luring in big Ben and the parliament building. And I saw her, her petite figure up there and how she had to gingerly make a turn. And I thought, Oh yeah, I got to get her. I got to get her. And then it was Susan Chepkamai right after that. Um, as soon as I passed Constantina seeing Susan Chepkamai and realizing, Oh my gosh, there's actually only two more women in front of me. And, um, and so, so at that point, it was, um, I think it was an interesting feeling to try to force myself to stay on pace instead of get excited. And, uh, because that momentum of, of detaching and pulling away and then passing more people, that momentum is intoxicating. Um, the best feeling I had of that ultimately would be the following year in 2004 at the Athens Olympics. But that momentum really gives you great energy when you're passing someone, it's almost like you want to go faster, but instead I had to make that choice to use the energy to just feel better in the pace that I was in. So although I was came very, um, my 
my goal was to break this record. I didn't want to make any risky moves just in the height of the moment to, to jeopardize um, what that finishing time might look like. Where does that discipline come from? Believe me, I coach a lot of athletes and they're not making that decision. <laughs> they're almost always making yeah. a decision to bridge and to make the move because they feel great and this will last for forever and forget that even though the last marathon, which was six months before, was an epic failure in the exact same way. How did you know and stay committed to being balanced that way? How did you do that? Yeah, I, it is, we was most certainly from coach V Hill reinforcing daily emotional control that the, your greatest curse in the marathon is emotion. So take the emotion out of it and be strategic. And it's interesting that after 2001, my very first marathon in New York city, how having emotional control uh, doesn't mean it's easy. It gets hard. It eventually gets really hard, but having emotional control, um, and going through the, the, um, the span of 26 miles made every race of a shorter distance, um, and okay to be completely reckless. And that was so fun to be able to run a reckless half marathon and a reckless 10 K just go all out from the start. That to me was so fun. It kind of having that balance of emotional control in the marathon opened the door to be reckless in any smaller distance. Fun lessons. Yeah. So we, here we come to the finish and it's unbelievable that Paula Radcliffe runs 215, 25, uh, a time that when it happened, it was splashed across every newspaper in the world. People said, you have seen something that we will never see again. We'll never see that. People wondered whether or not she would ever, anybody would ever again be able to go that fast. If only it would be her if she could. And then when over the subsequent years, she was unable to do so through so many just tough luck situations that happened for her. Um, you know, it was the record that everyone said um, wouldn't happen to the point where people were calling her a doper and saying that she, there's no way any human being could ever do something like that, which to me is just heartbreaking to think that you can have a performance of this level. That's the world we live in. But still to me, this is, this is Bob Beeman, his, his, his 29 foot leap. And it's even more impactful to me for me than even the sub four minute mile. Um, just because sub four minute mile within a very short period of time, the record just kept falling and falling and falling very quickly. And this performance from her was unlike anything we've ever seen. Then so stunning. But if you look at her training regiment and her resting regiment and her nutritional regiment and her therapy regiment, you realize that she spends 24 seven every single day catering to that goal that's ahead of her. And it, it seemed even intense in my eyes to see some of the things that she was doing in Albuquerque, New Mexico, where she would go for high altitude training. Uh, it was, it was that type of, um, um, discipline and precision was very impressive to me. Uh, it almost seemed a little too secluded for me. Um, because again, I like my, my team around me, but it was, it was certainly the driver of her success was that discipline. Yeah. And, you know, then Catherine finishes just under 220, gets another sub 220 marathon to 1955. And then lo and behold, here comes Dina trucking down the road. Tell us about that last mile. And 
you know, you, you're so close to this record. Did you know where you were at? Did you know how close it was and, and what was happening over those last mile to two miles of, of how this plays out that here's this incredible you American record that has been on the books for so long at this point, 20 plus years. Mm -hmm. And you, and you have this intimate relationship with the person who has that record, who has already called you the lady in waiting. And how do you hold all that together over the last bit? Do you, and tell us a little bit what happens over that last mile and a half to two miles, the, the drama of it. Yeah. So I'll just go ahead and say it's one of the most stunning final two miles of any marathon race that it really does have a royal feel to it, passing big men and parliament and Buckingham Palace and turning right at St. James and going into the mall um, with all the flags. It's truly stunning. And uh, and the crowds are are rich and loud. And uh, and I was cutting it too close. Again, my math, I was like, am, am I just over? Am I just under? What am I doing here? Why don't you just stop looking at your watch and put your head down and go? And that's inevitably what I had to do because they have a countdown. You have a mile to go. You have a K to go. You have 800 meters to go now, 600 <laughs> meters, 400, 200. Um, and so every time I'm like looking at my watch, but I couldn't figure anything out. And finally I was just like, put your head down and go. It felt like a pretty gnarly sprint to the finish, but at the feedback I saw that I was just barely, mm. <laughs> barely moving into the, into the finish line. But as you go under the big, um, media bridge, you, you lose sight of the clock. And so I didn't know if I had broken Jones record or not. And, um, and I, I, I had given it anything, everything in that final push, you know, in the end you might think, Oh, I had a, a mental lapse here and I should have, I should have, um, pushed a little harder or, or detached myself from that amazing group of athletes a little sooner. If it, if it, was not in my favor, but I had my hands on my knees at the finish and looked up to my husband, Andrew running towards me and my agent and coach V Hill. And uh, Andrew says five seconds. And I, my first thought was oh. that I missed it by five <laughs> seconds. And I was just like, Oh, all that way for five seconds. And, and Ray said, no, no, you got the record by five seconds. And so it was just like from that tired uncertainty to that, to that really invigorating well of relief, um, to hear. And it's amazing that when you reach your goal, how quickly you recover afterwards. Whereas I felt so depleted when I heard five seconds, like, Oh, like this shutdown. Um, but as soon as it was, you, I, you, you, broke the record by five seconds, I immediately like shot up in the air and hugged them. And to hear that Catherine had broken 220 and Paula had broken the world record. I was just, it was such a, a mix of emotions to feel that satisfaction. And of course my phone rang when I got my bag and was putting my sweats on and it was Joan congratulating mm. me. She is such a class act. Mm. Um, but that mix of emotion of, of capturing that goal that was, um, that seemed so unobtainable and then seeing what else is actually possible. And I loved, I loved the mix of that moment, that feeling of insatiability, that feeling of accomplishment, but insatiability that as I looked at Catherine and Paula, before we got on the awards stands that they kind of pushed my line of dreaming and daring out a lot farther. Mm. They did it to everyone. And to the point yeah. where it took 
17 years for anyone to even approach that, that time. And, um, and you still hold the American record. Um, I, I do believe your American record from 2003 London would still be the world record if you hadn't run faster. Is that correct? I don't think that is correct. I think maybe Shalane would have okay. broken it in Berlin. Um, but I'm, I'm, I'm actually not entirely positive when I say that, but I think she might've broken it in Berlin if that were the case. But this day is one that, that will go down and has gone down in history as one of the great, for, for sure, one of the great women's races of all time. And right after it, the biggest race at that point, women's marathon at that point is a right around the corner, a year around the corner. And, you know, we're not going to have the time to go into the 2004 Olympic games, but what a reversal in some ways because of the expectation for what's going to happen, um, for, uh, what expectations Paula had for herself. Um, sort of that, that what you just described as, oh my goodness, how do I make up the gap to get back up? Cause at this point you still know Catherine is at least the 218 runner that she ran on that day. You've got a 215 woman in the mix and you've got all these other people all in play and it's a hot day, unbelievably hot day. And so you just take the script and it gets torn up and thrown away. But at the finish line, it looks remarkably like, like O3 London in terms of Catherine is second place. You're third place for the first Olympic gold medal that we've, the Olympic medal that we've had since 84. And, but it's not Paula who's in the driver's seat winning that race. It's a pretty well unknown Japanese woman. Um, Mizuki Noguchi. Noguchi who, yes. who just slipped away in the, in the middle miles of that race when it got hot and everybody else was like, not, not really. I don't know if they weren't paying attention. They were just, they just let her go and she just slipped away and just kept staying away. They ended up almost catching her, but they, but, but, but Catherine couldn't bring her in and you came from dead last pretty much and ran through an entire field of, of women to basic to, to, I mean, you caught like th four women in the final 10 K or five women in the final 10 K, I believe. So such, tell us a little bit about Oh four and how it, how you feel about it and where it sits in this context of Oh three, because it was so important, but yet in a lot of ways, it's like, it looks like this, like completely different race, but there's some interesting parallels that, that are at least, when you look at the podium, if not, when you look at how the focused intent that the, you and Catherine were able to put in worked for you that day. And it just didn't for Paula for, for a lot of reasons. Right. Um, so I will say that the finish of both of those races were very similar to feel so elated for reaching my goal. And they're both third place finishes elated for reaching my goal. But that sense of dissatisfaction um, of knowing that I could do better. And um, when we got dropped off in the town of Marathon, it was 101 degrees out. And I just thought, wow, I was going to run a conservative race. But my conservative race just got a lot more conservative because I knew even going in that not only are, is this competition going to be super hot, but the conditions, the heat and the hills are also going to be a factor here. The hills I felt very confident with because I trained um, so specifically on them. 
but, but the, the, the triple digit heat really did make me nervous and make me, um, kind of disengage and almost not even pay attention to the race going on in the beginning, maybe the first 10 K I was completely just in la la land, just in my own world. And, um, it wasn't until I felt this long draft of women behind me thinking like, Oh yeah, I'm not here to drag you through this race, but already at 10 K there was people, the best women in the world peeling off to the side of the race course and puking or staggering ahead of me, not able to keep a straight line. So the heat was taking its toll so quickly on people that were maybe running outside of their, out of their threshold pace. Um, at one point I had no idea what was going on in the, in the beginning of the race in the lead pack. But as I, um, we had FBI agents assigned to us because of the war that was going on. So even at the start line where you have the, um, a long line of, of women getting ready to start, there was three FBI agents behind the U S women. So they were the only three men on this starting line. And, um, their job in the race was to kind of, um, leapfrog each other and count for all three of us, um, women, Jen Rines and, um, Colleen DeRook that were on the team. And at one point it was, I realized it was Jen's FBI agent that shouted at me that I was in, um, 12th place. And I thought, Oh, there's only 12 people ahead of me. Oh, I'm going to get going. And so I picked up the pace a little, and then I'm counting down. Okay. Now I'm in 11th and now I'm in 10th. And then I saw a pack of three women ahead and I thought, Oh God, I can get all three of them at once. So like, let's, let's, let's blow past them. And then I kept getting confirmation. You make this sound so easy. Yeah. I'm just, yeah. I'm, I'm moving my way through the best <laughs> women in the world. There's three bag them and move on. Yeah. Yeah. There was, it was really, it, I really did feel like I was casting and just reeling, reeling in and kind of made a fun visual of it even to But you make, were prepared, fit and confident to be running yeah. through that field like that. I but, certainly was. But, but, <laughs> I you, certainly was. but you're also a Cali girl who spent, I mean, you did spend some time in Fayetteville, Arkansas, which can sometimes get hot and humid, but yes, but nothing like what you were dealing with here. I mean, you lived in Alamosa, Colorado, which it does get hot, but it's different kind of thing. And in Mammoth Lakes, you're, you're, it does get hot, but it's completely different. And you can prepare as much as you want to for something like that. There's no way to deal with 100% humidity and 101 degrees, unless you're someone who operates in that space and can gain the mental confidence. How did you psychologically deal with that? Did you just say, I got to stay in my lane and then, then consistently worked up? Or did you actually have some preparations there for just dealing with what was going to happen? We definitely prepared for that. Um, so I say we, because Meb Kefleski was also on the U S Olympic team in the men's marathon. And we, we trained together here in Mammoth Lakes with the rest of our team. And we overdressed every day in training just to create a false sense of heat and humidity. So it might be 70 degrees out when we're training, but our internal temperature is being raised and challenged a little bit more because of that. We knew we had to drink more fluid. So we challenged ourselves to drink more on the run and not just, um, more fluid, but more concentrated fluids so that we're getting more calories in. So just making little tweaks like that. 
And then we also went to the island of Crete uh, probably a month before our race. And we adapted to the time zone and to the heat and humidity there. It was actually quite drier in Marathon into Athens than it was on the island of Crete. Um, significantly drier than being on an island, but um, but I think it had served its purpose in acclimatizing to the time zone, but also the, the ambient temperatures. And we started, once we got to Crete, we started training hard at night instead of what we typically did back home where we train hard in the morning. So just trying to get those little details down to get your body sharp and, and heightened in the evening instead of the evening, just being your loose shakeout run. So those kind of details, I think really add up. They might, they might be a second or two here and a second or two there, but when you keep doing the right thing, then those seconds add up to be able to, to pass the best in the world when it means the most. Yeah. And it was fast for that day too. I mean, I 226, yeah. 227. I mean, that is, that is moving for that kind of weather conditions. And the way that race played out. It's just interesting how that is always a race that just sits in my mind. Also just Paula's, you know, she, she was there for so long. And, and I, as I remembered the race before I went back and rewatched it, I thought she dropped out earlier, you know, cause I remember when I, when I watched that race in live, she kept going to the side and doing some weird things to the side in that race. And I think at some point I just said, Oh, Paula's out. She's out the back. What's going to happen now? Who knows what could happen? And then, you know, we were just excited about watching you start moving through the pack and everybody getting really, really excited. Um, but she would, as I watched it later, she was there even up to 20, 22 miles. I think it was around 20, 22 miles where she finally dropped out and then was just an absolute puddle. I mean, she was right. a puddle. I think it's because she gave so much emotionally to just continue when her body was screaming at her to stop. And she kept, you know, stretching on the, on the curb and sitting down, but getting up and trying again because the crowds were encouraging her. And so I think she just kept trying to rise to the occasion and she finally just, just couldn't get anything more out of herself physically, mentally, or emotionally. She went to the well for sure. Yeah, Sad I mean to see. And unfortunately she also had to deal with that with her, with the, with the famously contrarian English, um, media who are, who were already calling this a terrible situation, which is so sad to me. Anytime I see it with that, the way the, the way the Brits decide to deal with their heroes, like, why do we like, we're humans, we're all humans, but she gets back, you know, she wins in 05, um, Dereba gets second and Dita gets third, um, in 06, you break the elusive 220 barrier, breaking um, your own American record. Tell us a little bit about that at London. So three years later, you win a huge major and go under 220, which is just puts you in extremely rare and a rare place in the world to say nothing of the U.S. Yeah, I actually loved that era of racing because everybody showed up to the same races to race against each other. And I loved that. And I don't know if it's because there's so much money in the sport now that people just try to go to places that they can that they can win. Um, so it seems like the talent is diluted, even though the same races are still there. Um, but I loved that era that we just showed up on any given weekend, whether it was on the track, in cross country or on the roads and really, really fought hard, um, to prove our fitness level. And I was really looking forward to 2006 because Paula, Paula was in the race. She ended up dropping out of the race. I think just a couple of weeks before, 
which was really bittersweet for me because my buildup had gone so well. And I really wanted to, to race against her, um, while, when she was, when she was feeling good, you know, I, I didn't count 2004 because she had had some problems coming into the race. She was a little banged up on the starting line even. So I like to be head to head when people are at their best. And I would have really looked forward to that. Yeah. I would have risked my, my race plan of just running that sub 220 pace. I would have risked it to, to actually race against her. Yeah. It's amazing. A- amazing era of distance running and, uh, that, right. I mean, 2003 London is, um, I, I was grumpy when you chose this race. I wanted you to choose Athens 04 so badly because I just loved that race so much, but after going through it, I saw the wisdom of you choosing that race, not only for just the, the single, like just shot across the bow that, that Paula put out there, but the way the race played out, the major players on the starting line that we all forgot about and you're breaking, um, to you taking the, 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 the next, the lead for a former generation of women's distance runners and marathoners in the U S and bringing it back for us, for having a woman in the, among the best in the world. And that race was the day that you really sent that message in a way that, um, that was indisputable. I mean, the way you ran that race was you were among the best in the world and people had to take you into consideration. And that is something that people had been laughing about in the U S since 88. And we were the laughing stock on the men's side and the women's side. Of course, Meb is also part of that group. Of course, he, he, his came a little less from performances at the fastest races at the highest level. Of course he won his in maybe more dramatic fashion, the way his race played out in 04 with the drama that happened in Athens. And then also then what happened at Boston with his win, with the the one that he snuck. So he sits in all of our hearts as Americans, but he wasn't really, no disrespect to him, but he wasn't the level of athlete that you were on the world stage. And you, you, you made it acceptable. And I think that's why we see women running at the level that we see women running right now. We see women, American marathoners having a chance maybe having a chance and being in big races where racing counts, maybe not at the front um, where they're going after the fastest race in the world. Although I think that may be coming, but we do, if there's a race at Boston, if there's a race at New York city, as Shalane proved, we're, we can be in the mix and that would never have happened if it weren't for Dina Castor. Never would have happened. That's very generous of you to say, but I think the reason, the real reason that I chose this was how the race resonated at the finish line for me that, uh, I think I can't overemphasize how we can reach our goals, but, but, but we should always keep striving. And it was such a, it was such a clear and abrupt feeling to feel the satisfaction of reaching my goal and that drive to want more out of myself. And that was, that to me was, was so beautiful. It's why Paula kept trying to run faster than 215 and get her Olympic gold that she was trying to chase. And I, I think that that spirit should live in all of us, whether we're, um, trying to run a PR or qualify for Boston or, or just start doing this sport because we're being inspired by the people who are doing it in our own neighborhoods. And, um, and I think that that is really unique in this sport. I'll say that again, that we can all be on that playing field together and feel those same emotions. 
Well, I love that sentiment, but I'm going to ask you this question. Why you? <laughs> well, why you? Because it had to be somebody. And it, and, and many other women could have had that opportunity, but they, they didn't take it. Why you? I have to give credit to the people around me. It came from my choices. I chose to move to altitude and train with coach V Hill. So those were very smart choices in my book. And I feel so fortunate to be in the hands of him at such a vulnerable and impressionable time in my life that he just told me, um, that he believed I can do it. I told him I wanted to be an Olympian. I wanted to break 15 minutes in the, in the 5k, even though my personal best was far from that. And he said, well, it's going to take a lot, but you can do it. And you just have to bring a good attitude. He showed me the physical work that I had to do, but it was my job to make sure that I was reaching the potential of that physical work with the attitude that I brought every day and the lifestyle I lived from sunup to sundown. And I loved having that onus on me. I had the trust in him. And then I had to, I had to do all the mental cultivating and, um, and a lot of the legwork outside of practice. And I loved that sense of teammanship between the two of us, but also that his ideals were aligning with what I was seeing as successful, that altitude and teamwork really works. Um, teamwork more than anything. I have a book on my bookshelf. Um, Sean Acor wrote The Happiness Advantage, but he also went on to write a book called Big Potential big potential. And it's about how we thrive in group atmospheres, whether in the workplace or in sports that we really rise to the occasion, whether it's the competitive nature or a synergy that we feel when we're working with other people. And, um, and so I love that he, he, he created in many ways, but also supported a lot of ideals that I had come to the table with. And I'm ever indebted to him. He's my greatest mentor because of that. Wow. Yeah, I think that that's one thing coach brings to everyone is this idea that you can be who you want to be. You can be as good. And he requires you to suspend disbelief. If you're going to fit in his system, you have to suspend the disbelief that is inherent in all of us in some way. And in your case, um, you know, 20 years of, of, of the people that came before you, but coach just said, oh shit, that we're not going to do that. Right. That, exactly. That's exactly what he said. I you know. quoted it perfectly. I know. Cause I was coached by him. Oh shit. Right. So <laughs> get tough. I mean, it, like it's, it's really two simple, basic things, but that is, I do know that coach really works on that aspect. Even if it's not stated is like that suspension of disbelief, believe that you can, that that starts with saying, don't say you can't. That's an right. important distinction. I think that coach makes as always made and that I, you know, as a coach, as I went into my coaching career, I had, I spent more time with him as a coach than I spent with him as an athlete. And I learned so much from him in what he believed in his athletes and what he believed in the humans at all. He also said you had to run hundred miles a week to be an elite level marathoner period. End of story. He didn't want to hear any truck with anything like that, which I don't know that I necessarily fully and completely agree with, but I do know that he did believe that we were capable of so much more. And you know, that, that you are a fruit of that labor of the many years that he, that he put in for that, you know? 
Yeah. And as we're, as we're even talking about him in this capacity, his lesson um, goes straight to the heart of that feeling after London 2003, where I was third place, broke the American record behind Catherine Dereba and Paula Radcliffe, who, who smashed her own world record. And that feeling in Athens of getting a bronze medal and reaching, reaching my goal in both cases and feeling that insatiability, I think it's because he always instilled excellence over success. Mm. So success is maybe winning or reaching your goal, but that's not really what it's about. It's about trying to excel. And so I think that's where that insatiability comes through time and time again at every finish line where I can pat myself on the back a little bit, but then it's that, how do I continue to excel from this moment? And, uh, and he reinforced that so much over the years in many different ways, but that's how, that's how, um, how it resonated with me that it wasn't about succeeding at your goal. It was about excelling in who you are. Excellence, find a team, right? Suspend mm-hmm. disbelief. Wow. You've given us so delay, much. Inf- delay gratification. That was another one of his things. We have a whole sheet of papers that we just basically disregarded completely. <laughs> and I'm so thankful we did. <laughs> hey, I've got a few things to add from your coach because I asked him this question of you about what made you different. You covered a lot of it. He also said that you love being thrown big challenges and taking on big challenges. In fact, you need big challenges. And to me, that sounds so fundamental for a, an elite competitor, for a world-class competitor. Like, doesn't every world-class competitor like that? And he's like, no. <laughs> They're, they're not all like that. They all know how to work hard. They all know how to train hard. Um, you know, they do a lot of things right and, you know, they grind, but not all of them appreciate just being thrown something that maybe not, may not be attainable, but they're going to totally commit to it, even knowing that. That's interesting because I actually like discomfort. I like, I like feeling uncomfortable with something approaching, like something on the calendar, something that's going to test me. One thing that comes to mind because I'm looking right at it is, is my book. When I was asked to do the audible version of it, I have a phobia of reading out loud and sure I'll do it. Yeah, let's do it. And so get into the studio and read the book and knowing that, that so many people are going to listen to it. Um, I love to cook and bake, but I am trying to perfect sourdough. I'm trying to learn Spanish. Like I like, I like challenges and feeling uncomfortable because I, again, it goes towards excellence. It's trying to not be the best and most fluent Spanish speaker, but it's about just, just excelling myself a little bit more, get outside my comfort and, and explore, um, explore things that make me expand what I know. Um, I've actually been reading a lot of uncomfortable material because of the state of our country right now. A lot of our history that feels uncomfortable when I'm reading about it, um, history of the United States. So I like feeling uncomfortable because then I try to find solutions to, to excel and to, um, yeah, just to, to solve and expand and grow. And I, I never want to lose that. I want to, I want to be learning until the day I die. (laughs) Well, you told us that you do, um, speaking and just, I, I don't know who all you speak to or what all you speak about, but you mentioned one topic recently where you had to speak on positivity to a group. And this was just a week or two ago. And we know the time that we're all going through now, and maybe it's a little quieter than a week or two ago. 
So how, how did you do it? Because I know already that you're not the type that's just going to fake it. You know, that's just going to say something insincere. That's not genuine, but at the same time, I'll bet they walked away feeling better and people walked away feeling positive. So how did you pull the rabbit out of the hat? And, and as I do it, I, I mean, as I speak on optimism and positivity and tactics to, to, to get to a higher self, I I'm reinforcing it in myself. So although it's, it's giving and sharing, um, which is part of my life philosophy, it's, um, it's also reinforcing, which is important. And so these experiences that I'm giving, it's an hour of optimism, cultivating optimism, which, um, I'll, I'm not going to lie a week ago seemed pretty dire. Like what good is keeping a gratitude list when, um, when, when our world can't even get along. I even thought, how did we land this commercial rocket with such minute precision on the international space station? And we can't treat each other with common decency. Like how did we get that right? And this so wrong, isn't decency more important? Isn't kindness more important? And so I, I had to work all week long in going from waking up sad every single morning to now being hopeful. This is part of my strategic joy that, um, this is my reminder. I'm going to have faith in America again. I brought myself some, some red, white, and blue orchids because I want to be part of this solution. It's important for me, but only from a place of optimism, can we expand our minds and and find solutions. If we're in a state of sadness and disappointment, we're locked up and, um, and, and our minds are foggy. So we're not really able to, to see far into the future. And so by really driving home some tactics of optimism, gratitude lists, strategically adding joy to my life, um, making sure I'm getting out and running every day. I've come to a place where I'm looking strategically at news feeds to hear the voices of people who may be our next Martin Luther Kings, our next Nelson Mandela's, the people that really emancipate us from hate and allow us to, to love and have compassion towards one another. But I only got through it there through a lot of hard work and reading on the right things instead of just the sensationalized news and knowing that I want to be part of this solution. So I'm donating to the right charities and going to do a lot of homework when it comes time to vote. And I'm going to be that voice of optimism for other people so that they're spreading love and kindness and not the other um, less valued emotions. And so I really just feel committed toward that right now and uh, wanting to make the world a better place. But you could think like my dad doesn't believe in a lot of the global, um, um, global crises, climate change and stuff. He's like, what good, like how much could one person really affect the world? And I thought to myself, how sad, like, of course we can want, we, like one person can change the world. One conversation can change the world. People that's, that's how the world changes and evolves those conversations that happen that enlighten and empower. And I want to be part of that solution and not think we're that insignificant that what we do doesn't matter. Have you always had that philosophy or have the recent times made you reflect and want to take more ownership and want to be more part of any number of solutions? Or is that just who you are or is that you evolving and reacting to the times? 
I think, I think it's to a certain extent evolving, but I'll go back to coach V Hill, our little saint here that we're going to just keep gushing <laughs> over, um, that he really showed me that the value of what we have increases when we share it, whether it's time or money or knowledge or food on the table. And so in my first meeting with him, he asked my philosophy and my head just exploded. Like I'm here to run what, what, what the hell does philosophy have to do with any of this? And it really nurtured over time as I thought, what, what good is this win? Why am I trying to win races and run fast? Like, how does that fit into the scope of the world? And, and working through the whys of that allowed me a platform to use my voice in a positive way and share all that running has taught me in how optimism not only made me, um, uh, a world record holder and Olympic medalist and, um, uh, and have all these accolades in the sports, but really has, um, the same lessons had given me a much more fulfilling and enriched life. And uh, to be able to share that with others, I feel is my job. <laughs> yeah. It's my job to spread the good. Well, you've done your job today. Um, <laughs> you are, you, you brought a lot to us and everyone who's going to listen to this and, I'm so glad that we could just nail you down and dig into a race because this is what we've been trying to do. Um, it's hard to get an athlete to talk details of a particular race and strategy and what they are thinking, but far more important than that, we're, we're here just learning who you are and we knew you were someone special by what you accomplished in your career. And, uh, in just the, the short time we've all spent together, you're just the depth of your humanity and your, your care, for the sport and the world is just really inspiring and, and motivating. So, uh, I salute you, you and, uh, I hope I can make myself a better person. I got a lot of work to do after listening to <laughs> your, your approach to life. But there's always work to do. That's the beauty of getting up in the morning and having that potential in front of you. Well, Dina, I have one more question for you and it, it, there's it, always like photographers always have one more shot yeah, to give. I have you guys one always more. have one more. I have question. one more question. And this okay. one really is, I have another answer. Good. It's all about, <laughs> it's your book is in my opinion, not a memoir. It is a self help, self guided tour on being an effective human being through the sport of running. And I don't think it's recognized for the absolute gold that is in there. And because we were going through 2003, I went back and reread those chapters and you brought to my, you brought to my recognition, someone I'd never heard of before, Andrea Mead Lawrence, who I'd never heard of. She wrote a book called the practice of mountains, which I'm trying to get a hold of. I can't find one. They're like $900 uh, each one. <laughs> And Dina's getting it off her bookshelf, evidently, if you're so, listening and watching. <laughs> there she goes. She's got it, Steve. Right there. Yes. So this book, your reflections, your reflections on this book and the impact that the way that you take someone who's in a sport that's different from your sport, um, who happens to be living in your neck of the woods, who's who's got a very different kind of I wouldn't say different world, but she had a different focus at that time where she was moving into being, um, you know, and she's of an ecology and she's paying attention to what's going on in our world. And, but you dig into this book and you start finding this woman was, had a set of 
balls. I mean, she was fearless and crazy. And you took a book that had nothing to do with your sport, that when you read the portions that you choose, and I'm going to read a quote that she has, and I just would like to get your reflection on that because I think the quote is absolutely moving. And I, she's, I just wanted to tell you how rare it is to find someone that can take these gleaned pieces of wisdom that are psychological gems and from a different place and make them realistic. I I would highly suggest anybody go through this. I just want to read this one quote. Okay. She says, understanding fear as process through which I could extend the practice of my own daring. So I'm going to repeat that again. Understanding fear as a process through which I can extend the practice of my own daring. And she has this theme of daring throughout the whole book that you really target in your book. Can you talk a little bit about that element and maybe whatever you want to talk about with her, since obviously you have a strong affinity and feel strongly about her or that quote or anywhere else you want to go. I just want our listeners to pick your book up because I want them to know that this book is not a memoir about Dina Castor. It is a way to live and a way to see sport as, as more. And I don't know, our sport is a movement practice and you bring that movement practice out through the pursuit and you're constantly in a pursuit rather than just sort of staying in your space. But there's so much wisdom there. Anywhere you want to go with that unending question that I just asked. (laughs) Well, I, I, it's funny you say that it's not a memoir because I was telling my co-author and my agent and my editor and my publisher, I am not writing a memoir. I refuse to have this brag sheet because that's not what it's about. I don't come, there's no drama here. I don't come from a war torn country. I I've been supported my whole life. So I don't want to write a memoir. So they called it an instructional memoir. And I was on board with that. (laughs) I I could see that I could do an instructional memoir, but I didn't want to force feed people, uh, self help. I wanted to, and it was a hard voice to find, to, to deliver the words in a way that this is what works for me. Imagine what you can do with this if you, if you worked on this. And with Andrea Mead Lawrence, her book is so deep and it's, it's really a slow read because you have to like take those nuggets of fear and daring. But when I read something like the quote that you, that you just read, to me, fear isn't a stopping point. It is, it certainly makes you feel uncomfortable or vulnerable, but fear gives you the opportunity to be courageous. And that's a much better emotion to focus on. So those, all those nuggets in her book, even one of not knowing racing her fastest she ever did was above the tree line because she just thrusted herself down the mountain And she didn't realize how fast she was going and didn't feel that fear until she got into the trees and they were going by her so quickly. She realized that she was, she was getting into territory she had never been before. And so then she started narrowing her line of sight so that she couldn't process the trees on the outskirts of the race courses. So playing with all of those things in my own sport but also the emotion that goes with it, that fear and vulnerability don't have to be these debilitating emotions that we think of them, even disappointment. 
um, it doesn't have disappointment didn't, doesn't have to mean that you failed. It could just mean you care a lot and want more out of yourself. That's what coach B Hill taught me. And fear doesn't need to be gripping and paralyzing. It could be your opportunity to show your courage. So just rethinking some of these harder emotions was so empowering to me, put me more in the driver's seat and to get excited about these challenges and these fearful, uh, positions I'm putting myself in, even being vulnerable in, in the setting like Paula was when she ran 215, putting it out there that she was going to do it and then running recklessly and us holding our breath for two hours and 15 minutes, um, waiting for her wheels to fall off. And they never did. Um, those are really great human moments. And if we let them pass us by without letting them inspire us and sharing them with others, so they too can be inspired, we're, we're really missing the point of our existence. Mm. Yeah, I would say so. So I will say that this, this book was, was great getting inspiration from her. Andrea Mead Lawrence is a two-time gold medalist in downhill skiing. Um, she has since passed. Um, but there, a couple summers ago, I ran from my house to Yosemite national park. It was 28 miles. It was something was on my bucket list for ages. And I finally, um, hunkered down to do it. It's the longest I've ever run to date, but I hunkered down to do it because they had just named a peak after her in the back country on the John Muir and Pacific crest trail. So I searched her peak and, um, and took pictures like little selfies, um, in front of it and then ventured on to Yosemite, but another book and that you could read books about, um, other people and apply it to your life all the time. One of my all time favorite books is the art of learning by Josh Waitzkin, who I also reference in, in, in my book, let your mind run. He was a master chess player and, um, and went on to be a black belt in Taekwondo, I believe, but he just took everything in life as a learning lesson and learned to be better, a better human being at every corner he found himself in. He did it with a lot more intensity than I do it. I do it with some like joy and excitement. He does it with like a little bit more intensity, but the beauty in his writing is seeing how really you can take anything in life and learn from other people to enhance your own life or your own passions. And so that is another favorite, uh, a favorite book of mine, but really you could pick up any book and, and find some way to apply it to your own life. I think that's just the beauty of what you did in your book was taking on you and in your career, you just took unusual from unusual sources, you were able to glean what you needed in the moment because you were creative, resourceful, and fearless. And I just want to say thank you for being the inspiration that you are, but also for showing people that there is, that we can face the hard things and find in us more. And I think you're the greatest living experience of what Coach V Hill was trying to teach. And I know how you feel about V Hill. If you feel even close to the way I feel about him, you know, what an honor that is to be considered in my mindset, to be the, to be the epitome of what he was trying to create and trying to create, to help create and be a part of. And you exhibit that not only did you do it during your career, but you do it day to day and every day now. And just want to thank you for making Americans relevant again, and also for lifting, making us realize that the fastest 
in the country also recognizes that the other people standing on the starting line next to her or behind her or wherever they are, are equal participants in this endeavor. And there are very few elite athletes that view it from that perspective. And I know you do. I know you know that any runner, whether they're running their first mile or they're running a hundred mile race is your brother or sister. And that's just highly unusual to find in our world. And you just, you're a humanitarian and a lover a love warrior. Right. And I just feel like it's such a, well, it's just been an honor to have you on this, on this podcast and to give us this time to spend with you. I, I'm just really thankful and grateful for it. Yeah. Thank you, Steve. Thank you, Jeff. It was, it was fun to flash back with you guys. It was um, hard to just like um, at first to get into that, to get into that race. But then those feelings came, came through specifically needing to poop, which I got to do at the finish line. But, but the, that feeling of being in that pack and not wanting that moment to slip away from me, I just needed to stay there. But then you realize that this dream pack is holding you back. And these are, those were really fun, real emotions that I had during the race. It was fun to relive them. And we got to relive probably the single greatest marathon experience at least until Kipchoge breaks two hours. Right. So <laughs> we'll see. We'll see. That would, that would be awesome when we can start racing again to break two hours in a sanctioned race would just be something worth celebrating. So let's get together and celebrate that one when it happens. Yeah. Jeff, do you have anything else you want to share? There's not much left to be said after uh, what we've heard from, from you, Dina. Oh my God. I said Paula as we were getting started here and I did at the end just to, you know, finish on a high note, but good book ends. Book yeah, ends. terrific. But uh, <laughs> yeah, Dina, it's been a, a true pleasure. And I uh, just want to thank you again. The pleasure was mine, you guys. Thank you so much. Wow. That was good. Steve, we've done it again. Yeah, we've I think so. Stumbled into an amazing dialogue with a legendary athlete. Yeah. We did. That was a that was really amazing. I don't know how we're gonna be able to to up that one. So we'll find a way, well, I guess. Maybe we'll just keep doing what we do, right? We'll just we keep doing to, what we do. It's not about upping, it's we're bringing something different. We brought yeah, a true. different era a different athlete, a different mentality and mindset. And there are more out there. So I don't think it's about better. It's about more and different. I don't, I know. And, and I do know that when you think about the interview that we had with Dick and how amazing that was and how amazing this one is, you do, you recognize they're different. They're different things. Um, but Dina's, you know, she's just a hero for all of us in a way that the way that she, I don't think she gets the credit that she's due. Maybe it's because she continues to plug away and keeps mm -hmm. training and racing. Um, you know, there's never been a retirement uh, that we, that we know of where she's basically saying I'm done. It's like, she's just continued like, like we did with uh, maybe in a lot of ways, like it was with Joan and Joan is still racing and, and, you know, Dina didn't break her record for 20, almost 20 years, took her to break her record. So maybe it's that, that's what it takes to be at that level, that there's a, a joy of running and a joy of seeing it as a movement practice and as something more, you know? Yeah. There's so much we didn't get to. We didn't get to the fact that she is a current age group world record holder in the half marathon at 109.37, set here in Philadelphia in 2014. 
I mean, it's not that long ago and I, I think she's still getting after it. I understand she's, she was training for Berlin, I believe to complete her uh, marathon majors. I don't know what she was trying to do there, but it sounds she's like she's still, still training. training at a high level. So yeah. Yeah. In a previous conversation, she dropped something about hundred mile weeks <laughs> yeah. as if that's something in the present for her and not just in the past. It wouldn't be too surprising. Yeah. There were so many more things we could ask that we even had listed, but the way the conversation went, it just felt really, really real. I mean, our, our, we had a much more, um, a dialed in plan of attack than we, than we showed in the interview, but that plan of attack was even less dialed in than the ones we've done in previous ones. So, um, but I think that anybody listening to this episode will, will have to, to really think about how important Dina Castor is, um, to American, to distance running in the world, but much more to American distance running and her, she being the greatest representation of coach V Hills, um, you know, long, hard push to bring America back to the front lines. We see what we see out of other major training groups in the U S and we, all of that happens. Um, because coach V Hill has a vision and a dream. And because Dina and Meb decide to stick to it and, and to go after it and to have command performances on the most important days in ways that, that no one, that, that people might not have expected, but yet brought up, brought up American distance running. I mean, the two of them by themselves did it and they did it through their coaches and they did it through big performances on big days to make America relevant again. Yeah. I wanted to ask her. So Benoit picked her felt that she could take the mantle. Yeah. I'm curious if there's anyone she would point to, but I didn't think it was fair. I don't want to be, you know, ambushed podcast and uh, put her in a, a weird spot because she may not feel that way about anybody. So I would hate for her to say something that could hurt the feelings of a special American athlete out there. But, yeah. Uh, and I also think, what do, you, it's, what do you think she would, what do you think she would have said? Do you think she would have had an answer? No, but I think that a lot of that has to do with the time frame we're in right now. And I think that there are, that there aren't going to be races anytime soon. So it seems like it's like, she sort of deflected that, that statement I made about Kipchoge perhaps breaking or Bikaley breaking um, two in a sanctioned race, because it's really not, as she said, it's really not the place we're at right now. You know, I'm excited right. about it. You're excited about it. I don't, I'm not, I don't. And I think that there's no clear person she could point to. So I'm not sure she would. She's too gracious and too, and I don't know that I could. Right. So I, I, I if you asked me who would do, who would, who would, who's the person that's going to take that mantle. Um, I don't clearly see someone that I'm confident that mm -hmm. is ready to go sub 220. Um, but it, it almost seems irrelevant right now because we don't have any races and no one can. And maybe, maybe that's a cop out, but maybe it's also that we need to give a little space to the situation we're in. And what amazing ability she had to continuously bring our questions when they got to near the end to bringing it back to issues of national import and global import about her being an ambassador beyond the sport to 
being a great human being and her virtue and ethics and excellence. These are the things that she continued to repeat because these are the essential parts of being a good person. And Dina, you don't, you, you don't get much better than Dina Castro as a human being. Yeah. We just scratched the surface on those social issues. You know, that we, we probably could have gone for hours had we continued down the road. I'm, I'm sure she would have been happy to have that conversation if time weren't a concern and it'll be fun to, um, you know, if we have the chance to follow up with her down the road, there'll, there'll be a lot more things to talk about, you know, from racing perspective and just see where we've gone as a society and as a sport. Cause I think there are a lot of conversations going on right now about, you know, what we need to be doing in our own lives, our own communities, our schools, our sport, our country. And she definitely seems like the kind of person who's dialed into it, wanting to, to understand it, talk about it. And as she said, be part of a positive change. To be uncomfortable and then be a part of a change because that's when she's at her best. That's what she said. And that was a great um, question you asked or, or the way that you brought that in from her, her former coach, Terrence, and how he said that she just really thrives in challenging big, scary situations. And she just, I mean, it seems like that's how she, that's what floats her boat. And that's what makes her the amazing human she is. So thank you, Dina. If you're still listening um, at this point, um, we're so grateful for your time. And I truly believe that the message that you're, that you're sharing with all of our listeners and the wonderful thing about podcasts is there may be listeners for years and years and years to come. Um, you are one of the greats and we're so thankful that you are with us and, uh, showing the way. And we, Jeff and I are so thankful that you came on our podcast and shared with our listeners, your um, amazing story and the great 2003 London marathon um, where Paula took her moonshot and landed <laughs> and landed it. <laughs> yeah. We, we got to straighten out this shot across the bow and moonshot. This was a, this was a moonshot, not a shot across the bow. A shot across the bow is a warning. This was no warning. Yeah. This was an anvil falling on the head of the record books and the, the competition. No doubt that's to bring my, in another analogy. Yeah. That was my poor use of analogy, but yes, yes. Well, thanks everyone for listening. We, we really appreciate you being with us. We promise this one won't get broken up into two. It's going as is out to the world. And hopefully um, you guys find it useful and enjoyable. And Jeff and I don't know when our next episode will be. Um, we don't even really know what it will be, but we'll be back with you. And hopefully you'll be with us. And um, these are too hard to produce to come at you on any kind of set basis. And we're trying to balance real lives. So um Thank you. If you really enjoy, if you enjoy this, please leave us a, uh, a review is preferable, but even if you just give us some stars, um, more importantly, share it with people that you think might benefit from it and share some of our other episodes as well. Uh, we're going to keep coming at you with this. Um, we're going to keep bringing legends to you and legendary races. Thank you for being listeners and we will catch you on the flip side. Godspeed.